0: Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Tom Lovelace, a former senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, joins us to discuss everything wrong with California's new mathematics framework. Then on the Research Minute, Amber summarizes a depressing new report that finds a degradation in instructional quality that's making it difficult to recover pandemic era learning loss. All this on the Education Gadfly Show.
1: This is the Education Gadfly Show. You know, you don't want kids counting on their fingers. You don't want kids counting on their toes. What does
0: Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome our special guest for this week, Tom Loveless. Tom, welcome back to the show. Hey, Mike.
1: How's everything?
0: Things are things are good here in D.C. How are things out there in California?
1: Very good. Very good. Yeah, a little warm, but it's summertime. There you go.
0: For those of you that somehow don't know, Tom is an education researcher and a former senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Tom used to be here in us, you know, education policy wonks in Washington before you left for greener pastures. But we're excited to have you on. Talk about an issue you've been tracking for a long time, which is, of course, math. First, though, let me welcome my regular co-host, David Griffith.
2: Hey, Mike! Always oh, a pleasure.
0: Yeah, and uh, it's great to have you here. You know, Tom, David, and I are are actually at the Fordham office headquarters, world headquarters today. A very rare thing, but it's our it's our one day a month in the office.
2: And here we are sitting on opposite sides of that
0: office, separate cubicles, talking. So we're right next door to each other, Mike. It's it's lovely. So we're ready to collaborate. All right, Tom. Well, we have brought you on because you have been following the California Mathematics Framework uh, for the past several years. It is our understanding it has now been finalized and approved by the State Board of Education. Let's talk about it on Ed Reform Update. All right. So, Tom, for those of us perhaps outside of California that have not been following this as closely as we should, First of all, what what is this thing? Is is this basically is this replacing the Common Core math standards in California, for example? Is is these are new standards, new curriculum? What is this, and and where'd they come from, and what the heck is California thinking?
1: Well, no, the the frameworks don't replace standards. What they're intended to do is to give guidance to local schools and districts on how. To implement standards. So, California still has the Common Core state standards in math. They now have a new framework that says things like, well, we want you to emphasize inquiry and we want you not to emphasize direct instruction. We want you to emphasize data analysis and put kids on a pathway through data courses in high school, we don't want you to assume that calculus is the end point for high achievers in terms of mathematics in high school. So it's a guidance document, not, it does not replace standards.
0: Okay. So this is supposed to be the how, not the what.
1: Correct. But it it easily slips into the what. So having said all that, it still involves dictating content.
0: Okay. All right. So, let's start with little kids. You have written a lot about how it is super important for little kids to learn basic skills, their their math facts. What does this framework do around that?
1: The framework, unfortunately, de-emphasizes basic facts. So, in the four operations, addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division, little kids need to learn you know, they're times tables. They need to learn basic addition facts through 9 plus 9 equals 18. And if you know addition and multiplication facts, the inverse of both of those are subtraction and division facts. That gives kids the ability then to go on and learn things like standard algorithms Where you're now taking multi-digit numbers and you're adding, you know, three-digit numbers plus three-digit numbers and you're multiplying three-digit numbers times three-digit numbers. The California framework that was just adopted de-emphasizes both of those basic foundational skills. Well, that doesn't sound good. No, it's not good. And to give you an idea of how they de-emphasize it, one of the stipulations in Common Core is that kids will know basic facts from memory, addition by the end of second grade and multiplication by the end of third grade. The state framework redefines fluency to remove the idea of speed. So Common Core talks quite a bit about kids need to be fluent with their basic facts, meaning reasonably fast. You know, you don't want kids counting on their fingers. You don't want kids counting on their toes. And you want kids to retrieve from memory rather quickly these foundational facts. Common Core redefines fluency to mean almost anything but speedy.
0: All right. Well, again, that's very disappointing. As we move up the grade levels, I uh, say, into middle school, I certainly have read that previous versions of this framework seem to imply that kids should not be doing Algebra 1 in middle school, that that should be saved until later. Is that still in there? Are there other things uh, around middle school math that we should know about?
1: Not as emphatically as in previous versions of the framework. So the framework that was adopted did edit a lot of that out, but it's still in there. So it's still in there that you don't want to accelerate uh, high achievers by giving them algebra in eighth grade. It's, But it's implied. It's hinted at. It's not as before it was just emphatic. Everybody's going to take the same math course through 10th grade. That's the way previous versions read. And now it is gee, you can accelerate high achievers if you want. We don't think you really should do it, but if you do it, here's the various things, hoops you should jump, etc. So it's still quite clear that the framework discourages it in terms of acceleration, but it's not as emphatic as it once was.
0: Wow. You know, we just came out with a big report from this national working group on advanced education that talks a whole lot about acceleration for advanced students, uh, you know, letting kids skip grades if necessary or move ahead when they're ready. And so this notion that all the way until 10th grade, we're going to have all kids who happen to be born in the same year take the exact same math class seems insane. But what I mean, it, what is this, Tom? Is, is it just basic leveling like they they think this is the way to equity or what? what's the argument here?
1: It is an equity argument, and it's part of the detracking, anti-tracking movement, which began in the 1980s. Uh, The idea being that if you allow some kids to accelerate and others do not accelerate, you have kids taking different courses at different periods of time, and that creates inequities. Yes, that that is the basic argument. Oh, my goodness. Oh good. Okay.
0: I mean, obviously, the obvious answer here is to have these accelerated advanced courses and do a better job of building a pipeline into those courses, making sure that pipeline's wide and diverse, right?
1: Of course. But that's the hard thing to do. It's much easier just to eliminate differences between classes. The hard thing to do is to prepare kids better, and that's what we should be doing.
0: Yeah. David, what, you want to get in here.
2: I'm not sure what I have to add, Mike. Has it occurred to them that if other states don't do the same thing, then everyone in California would be further behind? Has it occurred to them that, you know, when these kids get to college, they will not be well served by not having the requisite level of preparation? Has it occurred to them that employers might detect the fact that they, you know, I I don't know where to start? I think it's probably helpful if I don't re-identify as a conservative. But this sort of thing makes me question my allegiances. I got to be honest. It's really silly, Mike.
0: No, or or that, you know, you're not going to just see uh, upper middle class kids and other kids, parents just take it into their own hands. Like, all right, well, I guess we'll have to do math outside of school.
1: Well, that's the irony of the whole thing, because by adopting this kind of policy, which, you know, San Francisco Unified School District did adopt this policy. And Joe Bowler, who was one of the framework authors, uh, was a consultant to San Francisco Unified when it adopted this policy, as was Phil Darrow, who was one of the Common Core authors. And what happened is it created greater inequities because it played out just the way you suggested. It forces parents to rely on their own resources to accelerate their kids. So a, a kid from a disadvantaged household who happens to be very bright at math and works hard at math and knows a lot of math, can't accelerate unless they go into the private sector to get that acceleration and, and that requires money.
0: All right. Last issue here. The, the data Piece. Now, this is one where I feel somewhat conflicted this question about whether calculus should be the endpoint or not. Uh, And, you know, I've seen some, you know, people argue this out a little bit. Again, this is stuff that largely goes over my head. Uh, We have a study that we're trying to get going that would look at long term outcomes for kids that took AP calculus versus AP statistics. statistics. Yeah. So, I mean, I certainly get it that if you're going to go to a highly selective college in STEM, uh, you want to do the calculus route. But are we we sure that's such a bad idea to do something like AP statistics as the last point?
1: Well, at least all the university level people who are in the data sciences, and I'm not just talking about elite universities, I'm talking about even non-elite universities. What they say is... If you want to go into the field of data science in and, and you're going to take data science courses in college, you need to have calculus. So calculus is a prerequisite to get into real data science. So that is the best preparation for data science at the college level is to take really tough math courses while you're in high school.
0: Now that that, that seems to make sense. And I would think in my head that data science would definitely be a STEM field. Right? I mean, you're gonna need to do a lot of advanced mathematics. So yeah, it's perplexing. Uh, so there was all this backlash, Tom. It seemed like a lot of mathematicians and scientists, uh, maybe some of the Silicon Valley folks, certainly lots of parents were up in arms. And what? They made some tweaks, but is is this still a is this a big problem? How much should
1: we be worried about this uh, when it comes to California's future math performance? Oh, it's still a terrible framework. It reminds me of the 1992 framework, which set off math wars that lasted throughout the 90s. Now, the emphasis will shift to the local level. And that's where you're going to see a lot of pushback by these same groups, mathematicians, parents.
2: I guess I'm just sort of curious. I mean, it feels like there is bipartisan opposition to this, right? This doesn't feel like a winner for Democrats or liberals or progressives. I guess, I, I mean, how did this get across the finish line like this? I, it seems like even in California, a lot of parents
1: would not agree with this. Am I wrong about that? No, I, I think you're right. And I think that's where it can run into trouble. Just like in the 1990s, it was it, there were some moderate Democrats and some liberal Democrats. Who founded organizations like Mathematically Correct was the most famous and organized parents against that framework, the 1992 framework. I suspect the same thing will happen now. There will be some bipartisan pushback. Now, politically, the proponents of the framework have tried to characterize this as. These are right-wingers who are attacking our framework. These are anti-woke activists who are attacking our framework. These are Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump followers who are attacking our framework. So the people who support the framework are going to do their best to portray it as an ideological fight. But in fact, I think you're right. It's it's really a bipartisan uh, opposition that's going to arise.
0: All right. Well, that is sobering, uh, but it also does tell us that this fight is not over, that, that you know, as with everything in American education, what matters most is what happens at the local level. So I guess this, this battle will now continue. Hey, Tom Loveless, we really appreciate you joining us. Tom Loveless, formerly at the Brookings Institution, longtime follower of all things math education. Hope you'll come back on the show sometime soon.
1: Thanks, Mike. Good to be here.
0: All right, now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. All right, so are you going to do a Barbenheimer? Are you going to see Barbie or Oppenheimer?
3: I want to see both like everyone else, and I've seen neither. I'm going to wait till the crowds die down because I hear it can be a little tough right now.
0: Yeah, that, that some people like the crowds. You know, the fact that finally we're going back to the movie theaters. I'm not
3: one of those people, but I do like the big screen.
0: Well, I will say Leandro, my 13-year-old, went to Barbie with two of his pals and they enjoyed it. You know, they heard that you, you know, I, I took a little convincing, but he did hear that, well, you could either go to Barbie because you like Barbie or because you hate Barbie. And so and that it was supposed to be funny and it was supposedly funny, but it does sound like they were among the only boys in the movie theater.
3: I was going to say it'd be a great opportunity to pick up some teen girls, I would think. I mean, right. Exactly. I <laughs> have plenty of time for that.
0: All right. Well, what you got for us this week?
3: All right. I got a qualitative study. I don't do those often, but this was a good one. It got a lot of attention in the press. It's out from the Center for Reinventing Public Education in partnership with RAND. It provides an inside look at how a handful of districts are doing roughly three years after the pandemic. So basically, they interviewed a bunch of leaders in spring of 2023, about 30 of them, and five public charter and traditional school districts. The big deal here was that principals were back to observing teachers in classroom observations. So they had a bird's eye view of how instruction maybe has changed post-pandemic that they shared with the researchers. The uh, districts were unnamed, but they've been tracked since the beginning of COVID. They're in both urban and suburban settings, range in size from 6,000 to more than 40,000 kids. All predominantly serve students of color and high proportions of kids who are in free and reduced price lunch. And three big themes. I'm going to roll through them. It's depressing. I'll, I'll give you that much up front. Number one, School systems report growing clarity around the enormous challenges that lie ahead. All interviewed leaders, that would be 30 of them, said that they could not implement their COVID recovery plans due to a number of challenges, which I'm going to get into. But the big theme here, and I think what surprised me is that classroom teaching suffered. That's not surprising, but it's it was more of the teacher's skills that had regressed More than the students, like at the beginning, we were talking about, you know, the students, the students, the students. But big theme here is that leaders were saying that when they went in to do these observations again, this daily instruction was really lagging compared to before the pandemic. They said that was now their top priority was getting teacher quality back again. It wasn't accelerating learning or anymore, getting students back up to grade level, which were the big themes they heard in last year's interviews. So uh, in other words, the classroom teachers had gotten rusty and they had regressed in their own skills. Again, this was new news to the inter, uh, interviewers who had been doing these things since the beginning. Um, they said, you know, it was less about learning acceleration and interventions and, uh, you know, getting back on grade level. And, and actually, quote: this was the one sentence I put in quotes. The idea that students with different needs would get tailored instruction and support, such as additional learning time or tutoring to backfill their gaps was now gone, end quote. Teachers weren't approaching teaching differently to address losses. Many were dialing down the rigor. Observations showed that they were just delivering content as they always did, and kids were even more disengaged. Further collaboration and trust between teachers and principals had eroded since they hadn't worked directly together for so long. Oh, that's only number one, I hate to tell you. <laughs> I need to speed up here.
0: <laughs> yeah, not just speed up. You, you need to give us, I don't know, some reason to be hopeful as well.
3: Yeah, but Mike, that's not coming. Tutoring, extended learning time, summer school, adoption of new curriculum, accelerated instructional approach. This is all fell victim, according to them, to staffing shortages and troubles with vendors. They said that these tutoring companies and services were just terrible. You know, everyone's globbing on to tutoring, tutoring, tutoring. But there's a quality problem. Leaders said that tutoring was poorly done in general, which turned off the teachers. And then in terms of staffing, these districts were offering retention bonuses for teachers to just stay. But many reported that they took the money and left halfway through the year, which is apparently a new phenomenon where teachers leave in the middle of the year. Trying to get kids up to speed required more teacher training than the systems could provide or that teachers were willing to do. And number three... Centralizing instructional materials and rebuilding teacher capacity to, to deliver high-quality instruction was their focus now, these, these administrators, but we're still hearing tension in how much autonomy teachers think they should have and push back on centralizing materials. But the one school site that they thought was further along than these other ones did centralize curriculum by narrowing it down to the power standards, which are the ones that you know they thought were more important. They align those standards to a common pacing guide so every teacher in every grade level could stay on track. Even though they had a hard time staying on track, they still did better than the other sites without that power standards aligned to common pacing guide approach. And then finally, they offer a bunch of recommendations for, okay, what are we going to do about this kind of a mess we've got going on here? Quick three things. They say federal policymakers should give more flexibility with Title One. They should promote its use for out-of-school private tutoring. <laughs> maybe maybe they'll do better. Uh, number two, states should subsidize the development of quality independent tutoring. So somebody's got to go in there and, and be the QC control uh, you know, group. And they also say, number three, vendors should have to provide evidence of their effectiveness and be held accountable for performance in their contracts, which I think should, should always be true. That's where I'm going to leave it. I could keep going and going, but that's the gist.
0: Oh, that is depressing. Now, to me, what caught my attention, I think, was about the instructional core. You know, this notion that teaching itself is uh, has gotten worse. Right. And I guess what I'm always wondering is, like, first of all, you know, do we trust that the principals or the other observers, you know, are making fair comparisons? They're remembering accurately what teaching was like before the pandemic. I guess they probably do. Uh,
2: But also let me interrupt. No, I don't trust that. You don't trust that? No, I don't. So what
0: do you think is going on then?
2: I think that there is a natural tendency to remember the good old days and to say that things are worse now than they've ever been. But I cannot think of a rational reason why teaching should have suddenly declined. Yeah, maybe people were a little bit rusty coming back, but that should have lasted a month or two, shouldn't have lasted a year. I'm skeptical, Mike. I am. I'm sure they heard that or they wouldn't have said it, but I'm skeptical that it's true.
0: Well, here's what I'm always wondering is, you know, if I'm observing a classroom and Let's say it's, it's you know, four years ago and it's today and it's the same teacher and that same teacher is doing the exact same thing. But four years ago, the kids were somewhat more responsive, right? You know, they were having more success because, again, they hadn't gone through this whole experience. They hadn't lost learning. They hadn't had, you know, started these bad habits of disengagement, blah, blah, blah. To an observer, you know, that teacher could look very different four years ago from today. Right. Uh, Yeah. Right. I don't know. So I don't know how to disentangle (laughs) that. That's that's, that's my opinion
2: too, Mike. I mean, I wrote a whole column about this when I first joined Fordham. I mean, I just I am deeply skeptical of the ability of. I'm sure. I'm sure they can. They can. You know, tell at at the margins, right? Who's a good teacher and who's not? But everybody, everything you hear is that the kids are different. The kids have have lost the ability to focus. The kids are behind, and now we're going to blame. I mean. I just do. I'm very, very skeptical that that teachers are to blame for some of the really deep seated problems we're seeing with behavior and focus and that sort of thing. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. What, What do you think about this, Amber?
3: well um i do think they've dialed down the rigor um you know I've, I've got a lot of friends in education and i think it's sometimes it's just a domino effect right kids are coming in less prepared and and sometimes it is a, an impulse to dial down the rigor and i think that's a, a that's a problem you know the and and we do think that some of these hold harmless policies and these you know really you know easier policies that we had to put in place for the pandemic it's a real strong possibility that they could still be in place and that you know we're we're continuing to to see this dial down. I mean we don't know that for sure but I I don't know. I feel like when we we expect the teachers to do all this accelerating and catch up and not train them on how to do it and all they've been doing the past couple of years is dialing it down. I don't I don't think it's a huge surprise that they'd still be in that pattern.
2: I think there could be something to that, Amber. So when we walk about just a little bit, I mean, I guess I, I took it as some comment on like teaching technique. And I guess I'm just skeptical of that. I guess I also just feel like we're incoherent when it comes to, I mean, this notion of catch up, right? On one hand, we say that, you know, learning is, snow. You know, knowledge is a snowball, right? And the more you know, the more you know, the more you can learn, right? And then, but then on the other hand, we're saying well we're going to we're going to focus on the core you know standards and we're going to drop all these other standards right and it's like those two things are fundamentally incompatible with each other right they are H- how can kids catch up by doing less if the reason they're behind is they didn't do as much which is it and i don't know i i just i find all this notion that there's some Secret new way to catch the kids up that's fundamentally different from what we were trying to do before the pandemic. I don't know. We were already trying to. Catch it's supposed up. to
3: be tutoring, David, but the problem is, at least what they're saying is they don't have high quality tutoring.
2: I'll take some ownership of this because I didn't have a good, better idea either, right? And I feel like I, under the circumstances, endorsed it during the, the pandemic. I think a couple of things are are worth saying. First, obviously, there's a fallacy of composition here, right? Like just because there's some. You know, a tutoring program works well at small scale does not mean that every school in a city going out and trying to find a a limited number of tutors yields the same quality of tutoring. That's an obvious point. I think there's a certain amount of just bad luck here, frankly, for for policymakers. We didn't know that it was going to be a tight labor market when people were going out and getting these, you know, in in my mind, right? It's like a recession. There's, you know, there's Ivy League types just desperate for work or whatever. I don't know. I mean, it turned out that in practice, (laughs) Uh, everybody had a job if they wanted one. And so it wasn't that easy to go out and find really quality people who are just sitting around. Right. And I don't think anyone really anticipated that. So and then I, I've said this before, but I think the timeline has been too short from the beginning. Um, I think realistically, you can't spend money well over two to three years. It needs to be eight to 10. And we need to just accept that. But it's, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Mike?
0: I can't beat that. I think we'll have to leave it there, guys. That is depressing. But thank you to the good folks at the Center on Reinventing Public Education. They've done such a great job covering uh, the pandemic and its aftermath, depressing though it may be. But that is all the time that we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education GapFly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at
1: fordhaminstitute.org.